You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with always typical lydia today's show we're going to be doing the 1960 undisputed horror classic psycho perhaps the best film ever made there are people that would definitely agree with you on that one this is a movie that is so analyzed in the same way that hamlet by old bill shakespeare my buddy is one of the most analyzed plays in human history there's entire narratives about the shower scene in Psycho. There is films dedicated to the making of this movie. There are books. There are discussion points upon discussion points for this movie. Yeah, there's probably entire papers, tomes, stacks of papers as tall as me on the fact that her last name is Crane and she comes from Phoenix. Mm. Stuffed birds everywhere. I mean, hello. Hello, indeed. I don't know what it means. <laughs> Although the stuffed bird thing, I do, like, if you want to go into a really deep, stupid, fucking psycho rabbit hole, stuffed bird does sound kind of slang sexy for shagging a chick. Oh my god. I know, right? <laughs> deep cuts is what we do here. Splatter pictures. Dead air. So we decided to do Psycho. Why did we decide to do Psycho? Well, you decided to do Psycho. I decided to do Psycho because we all go a little mad sometimes, don't we? Well, that's true, and I've always maintained that a boy's best friend is indeed his mother. But it's a big movie, and it's a movie that does, like we were saying, get talked about a lot. But it is also a, a film that I find that people talk about more than actually watch it, and certainly talk about it more than they you know, dedicate podcasts to it and shit. Totally. Mm. I kind of wanted to do it because we're going into a little bit of black and white in a little bit, and mm. I had wanted to really... Um, Butt it up against a racer head just to stay in black and whitesville, mm -hmm. but that's not really happening because we're going into entity next. Because mm -hmm. you want to talk about like deep, troubling psychosomatic sexual responses, yeah, like that's like, where we're like gonna we go, do. yeah, like we do. It's what it's all about, people. Um, but I liked this coming out of Motel Hell just because mm -hmm. this is the original Motel Hell. That it very much is, and yeah. It is a trope maker, and we talk a little bit about stuff like that with some of the classic films and why we don't cover a lot of the bigger classic horror, because we end up talking about them. Like how many times we had mentioned Alien for episode after episode. After <laughs> I'm episode. sorry, I like that movie. It's a trope maker. It is. And this is a trope maker in many respects. Mm -hmm. Not only does Psycho have a lot of the makings of the early slasher? We do have a killer. We do have a body count, albeit rather small. And we do have the instrument of a butcher's knife. My favorite. The things that are in this film have inspired other filmmakers. And so there are everything from weapons used to POV shots to the types of killers that they make to the look of the serial killer that look of a serial killer that, that we have in our minds about the the mild-mannered, clean-cut, charming, good-looking serial killer comes from this. Yeah, it's not till the very, very end where you see it, really see it. But Ted Bundy, 
the number one most clean cut boy next door serial killer of your dreams and mm. nightmares has this exact same psycho glare that crazed fucking look with a, a grin um there's there's very famous photos of ted bundy that look a lot like anthony perkins as norman bates at the very end of this but even at the beginning you get those other tropes of like taxidermists are creepy um, I wish that there was times when Lila was looking at the books in his house. If they would have been able to show us what the titles were mm-hmm. and really what he was reading. Because if you're going to tie it into the book at all, Robert Block's book, Psycho, mm-hmm. the books that the Norman Bates we know from the book were, were, were reading was a lot of like taxidermy cannibalism and uh, forensic pathology and things like that and mm-hmm. like anatomy books. So that would have set her on edge absolutely yeah and it is the beginning of that like multiple personality disorder trope as well mama's Mm. boy tropes i I just love the fount that this movie really is Mm -hmm. some of your biggest horror directors have aped from this movie john carpenter's pov shots in halloween are directly inspired by psycho the idea of misdirecting your audience into thinking a certain person is the protagonist of your film and you kill them off wes craven has done that with both Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street. And we were talking about that, how you said no one really has the guts to go any more than 10 minutes with that sort of fucking That's ploy. That's the thing. This ploy goes on for nearly an hour, 50 minutes, that we get foreplay, really, of when is she going to die. She ends up going into the parlor far before the shower scene, and you're on edge already because he is really emanating this... I'm that psycho killer next door that you'd never suspect right away. And the movie's called Psycho. It's going to be one of them, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even something as eye-rolly to people about slasher movies about the hot girl taking a shower. Yeah. That is in so many slashers. It starts here. Yeah, it's really born here as far as the horror genre goes. Now, a lot of what Hitchcock was pulling from himself was... Uh, older noir and Italian film and things like that. Some of the greater filmmakers that he was looking up to, which definitely have scenes like this. It's not the first time we've seen a silhouetted knife used as a very phallic implement of death. It's not the first time we've had a hot chick in the shower. It's not the first time we've had these gorgeous looks of their eyes. So many shots of their eyes and the expressions in their eyes. Hmm. But this is where it's born in horror. Yes. And like we've discussed many times in the show before, when we're talking about the history of the slasher genre and how a lot of people settle on Black Christmas and then there's other people that say, hey, wait, 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 Halloween. Again, it's not so much that. And then, of course, some people will say Psycho. And then other people will go so far back as Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's not that Hitchcock really did anything wholly original by completely inventing things but what he did was that was unprecedented was cobble them together into something that no one had seen before it was the combination of things that he decided to put into this film that other people carried forward and so the evolution of the slasher i mean yes credit all credits due to the silent era cabin dr caligari films like that but it really starts here, I don't consider Psycho the first slasher proper. I'm the Black Christmas camp. But this definitely has all of the earmarks that you are looking for, from a body count to knife deaths to shower scenes. It's just the format shifts so dramatically in the last little bit of the film. That's where I'm like, mm, 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 mm. 
Not really. But for sure, I definitely can see people's argument. Other tropes in this that I just love, and things that I love about every type of horror film, uh, multiple personality disorder, creepy basements, the chair reveal. Wes. Oh my goodness, yeah. How many times have we seen a chair reveal? And they, it's used to, to comedic effect many, many times mm-hmm. too, but it is used really well in a lot of other films, but it's used to its utmost brilliance in this. It delivers the plot twist. It reveals the killer. It does all of these things and happens at a moment of such high tension as well that it's just irreplaceable in your mind as the number one chair reveal trope ever. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty cool corpse, too. They did a really good job with the corpse. It looks fantastic. Especially, I love the scene where the light is swinging over it and the the, the shadow that it's casting is changing. The way that it Almost animates the face a little. Oh, yeah. And especially in the eye socket area. So cool. So creepy. Mm-hmm. It works. It still works. And I know it still works because I recently had the wonderful opportunity to watch this movie with a friend who had never seen Psycho before. Which is fascinating to me. I'd watched um, Cabin in the Woods with someone who'd never watched a horror film in their life. Mm-hmm. And it was sad in a way that all this was lost in them. But I got to see what it's like in mm-hmm. a way. But like it must have just been brilliant to her. And, and it, it was so, so fun. It was so interesting. And one of the things that I like to do and you like to do, I know we, we like to do here at Dead Air Podcast, is we like to put ourselves in the place of people watching these films at the time. I'll never know what it's like to go to the movies in 1960. I just wasn't alive then. I hadn't been born. for, a, And it will, won't be for many decades until I would be. And you've been over-informed also by pop culture. We have things That's like thing. uh, Foster's House of Imaginary Friends and Cheese attacking in the shower. There are children's cartoons that mimic this scene. It is so iconic. It is so ingrained in our culture that you don't need to see psycho to know that scene yeah run run to youtube and type in i found a carrot exactly (laughs) yeah it has been parodied mimicked homaged a thousand times over maybe more but if you had no horror brain if you hadn't seen it if someone references this scene to you Mm -hmm. or to your friend as it were and they don't know what they're talking about exactly And, and 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 i'm not one of those people that I used to be when I was younger. I would furrow my brow in a vain attempt to understand why someone hasn't seen a movie. And I'd be like, you haven't seen this? Oh, God, what's wrong with you? Because it's a fucking movie and who gives a shit? They haven't seen it. They haven't seen it. You'd rather now be that guy that says, dude, let's go watch it. Let's watch this film. I have it. And this is exactly people are like, what is with this horror collection, man? Why do you have such a big fucking horror collection? For this, this is exactly why. If we love this stuff and we want to share it with people, I particularly want to share it with people who don't know these movies. Yes, it's fun to watch Friday the 13th with someone that's seen the movie a thousand times and you can quote it together and you could be like, it's got a death curse. You could do that shit and it's all kinds of fun. But I got something better for you. Watch Friday the 13th that doesn't know Jason Voorhees is going to pop up out of that water at the end of the movie. That is a fucking magical experience. Because when we get old and crotchety, we just fucking forget. We forget how fucking fun this stuff was. And one thing that's easy to forget about Psycho, which which I was reminded of when I watched it with my friend, was that this plot twist is not to be underestimated. And it is so effective. And the writing is so strong. And the misdirection so complete. It is completely within the realm of possibility that there is no way that you will guess what the twist is. 
and, and, and that's hard to believe because you're like, oh, yeah, Psycho. Everybody knows the ending of that movie, except for the people that don't. And when you watch it, again, without prejudice or, or pre-information, it fucking works. And it worked in 1960. It still works on a modern audience today. And it works quite terribly because these sort of problems don't die. You know, these uh, we have fancier names now for these psychological imbalances. We have uh, way more police reports to peruse that cover crimes like the crimes of Ed Gein, which I'll talk about in a bit. But like we have a lot more information surrounding people like Norman Bates. But someone who hasn't seen Psycho, yeah, yeah, it's chilling. It's a chilling fucking reveal. Yeah, Ed Gein, we definitely um, also can take for granted the idea that somebody like Ed Gein was so new and Robert Block being inspired by that, at the time, unprecedented case. Sort of. In a way, he had written most of Psycho before the details of the crime came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gein was being arrested while Block was writing this story. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like so thin to other people that he was less than, I think he was about 50 miles away writing Psycho and Ed Gein was doing this uh grave robbing and murder and stuff and the story was slowly coming out when Blanc had finished the book he did weave in some Gein stuff afterward because it did strike him hearing the details of the case and being mm-hmm. like I just wrote this book that is so close to this poor gentleman mm-hmm. um this poor psychotic killer gentleman yeah <laughs> so like it was he was taken aback where some people might be like oh yeah you're full of it you fucking read this news and then scrambled to your typewriter and just started writing this right no it happens a lot of time i will write stories and then hear things in the news and be like that's just like what i'd envisioned the uh, book wrong was written about um a firebombing of a royal bank to protest the vancouver olympics that is destroying the downtown lower east side and the people who live there and gentrifying it and not a year after that book came out, someone firebombed a Royal Bank to protest the Olympics against the downtown Lower East Side being gentrified. You know, fucking art and life imitate one another back and forth. It's mm-hmm. not always just one direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Block did something with Norman Bates that is so different from the Norman Bates we know and so much darker Mm-hmm. And I do urge people to read the book, mm-hmm. not only to watch Ho- Foster's House of Imaginary Friends, but I do urge people to read the original Cycle book. And even Wes said it's not that big of a book. No, it's really, really Just not. Just a little tiny little book. Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny that everything from Psycho to uh, Hell House, you look at these classic books that some big movies were based around. And they're not that big. And, of course, nowadays you think that everything's going to be like this fucking tome, right? Like like a phone book type book that um, that's what you're getting into, not realizing that. Because you even told me that The Exorcist is just a little bit thicker than this. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby isn't big. Like a lot of these films from books back in the day are on these like 60,000 word things. And to put that in context, you know, you're looking at one of these um George R. R. Martin things that can run anywhere between 200,000 words to fucking 600,000 words. These great big Kleenex boxes that run volumes one through eight, like giant fucking accomplishments of reading, which to me a lot of times are just really tiresome things of full of fluff. Like who wants to read that when you can write this like tightly honed, sharp as a knife, 60 to 50,000 
word book, which some agents would say are, is unsellable right now, unfortunately, but I'm going to continue writing shorter stories. Like Night Face was even big, I think. Uh, Night Face 2 will be a little smaller. My next novel is going to be even smaller. There's been a little more of a push for stories between the, you know, 20,000 to 50,000 word. These short novels, bigger than a novella, but, well, sort of a novella size, but a little closer to novel, something that's almost undefinable. That's what a lot of these books were. And you go into a used bookstore and look at all these like yellow jacketed pocket books, as it were. They're all about the same fucking size. And that's where a lot of our classic horror and a lot of our gothic literature is this exact same size too. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. at the time, Psycho size wasn't an anomaly. It was perfection, mm -hmm. much like the film. But part of the suspension that happens in Psycho, and it's not just because of Hitchcock being the master of suspense as he is or was. Um, it's also you're sold entirely because you believe those arguments happening between Norman Bates and his mom. Mm. And there's quite a few of them. There's little ones um, with lines where that end with him yelling, shut up, shut up, shut up, after this woman is is challenging him. His mother saying, you don't have the guts, do you, boy? Sort of like egging him on almost into murder in a way. So like these really dark little weird conversations, but they're very short and they're usually shouted. You don't really get as quite a deep, dark picture of how Norman's mother has warped his psyche and is ruining his life entirely like you do from the book. Because in the book, Norman Bates isn't a cute, geeky, adorable little fella. Like I'm totally in love with Norman Bates. Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates is just like my dream come true he's a gorgeous wonderful huggable individual yeah anthony porkins is a good looking dude he really is um norman bates in the book not so much he is a lot like when you read the description of martin from human centipede 2 he's an overweight poor eyesight creepy taxidermist lives alone very hermity and worries too much about his mom and reads way too much about cannibalism and is fixated on cannibalism and really fixate on sex and death, like big time. So he reminds me a lot of, and to hear the description of, of Martin. Um, in the book, you're sold quite a bit more heavily on the conversations happening between Mrs. Bates and Norman. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a little tiny bit. I love when you read from books. I love reading from books too. Everyone grab your cocoa, curl up by the fire. Change, boy. Nothing's going to change. You can read all the books in the world and you'll still be the same. I don't need to listen to a lot of vile, obscene rigmarole to know what you are. Why, even an eight-year-old child could recognize it. They did, too. All your little playmates did way back then. You're a mama's boy. And that's what they called you and that's what you were, were, are, and always will be a big, fat, overgrown mama's boy. It was deafening him, the drumbeat of her words and the drumbeat in his own chest. The vileness in his mouth made him choke. In a moment, he'd have to cry. Norman shook his head to think that she could still do this to him even now. But she could, and she was, and she would over and over and over again unless... Unless what? God, could she read his mind? I know what you're thinking, Norman. I know all about you, boy, more than you dream, but I know that, too, what you dream. You are thinking you'd like to kill me, aren't you, Norman? But you can't, because you haven't the gumption. I'm the one who has the strength. I've always had it, enough for both of us, and that's why you'll never get rid of me, even if you really wanted to. Of course, deep down, you don't want to. You need me, boy, that's the truth, isn't it? Norman stood up slowly. He didn't dare trust himself to turn and face her, not yet. 
He had to tell himself to be calm first, very, very calm. Don't think about what she's saying. Try to face up to it. Try to remember. She's an old woman. She's not quite right in the head. If you keep on listening to her this way, you'll end up not quite right in the head either. Tell her to go back to her room and lie down. That's where she belongs. So in the movie, the shorthand for that is you don't have the guts, do you, boy? <laughs> and him <clears throat> saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. Mm-hmm. You know, theatrical shorthand, condensing a novel. But yep. that is the sort of conversations you're getting. And there's quite yeah. a few of them that are that dark and that oppressive and that witchy. And him being that weak and scared. Really painting his mother as far more of a tyrant than even the movie does. Yeah. And even in the film, you get this idea of Bates's mother as very overbearing and very insulting towards her son, but almost kind of like ah, a little battle axe kind of way, right? Yeah, and he's also like, I don't want to hate her. I love her. I'll never put her away. I need to stay here for her because I love my mother and I'll do anything for her. But she can be a little bit mouthy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Whereas this seems like an absolute mental terror. Yeah. Yeah. It's really done very, very effectively. Uh, it's done effectively in the movie, too, obviously, because you get people who have never seen it that just about shit their pants at the end. Because I really believe this battle axe, as you put it, which is exactly what she is, is there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Robert Block's uh, book spawned this wonderful film. And where some people would say it suffers from sequelitis, because there are many sequels to yeah. Psycho. There is a Psycho three, franchise. Three sequels, I think. Is there four or five Psycho movies in total? Uh, five, and then you can count others. Like, you've got this book, which came out a year after Ed Gein was arrested. So Gein's arrested in 1957 yeah so it was written between like it was 56 to 58 it came out in 59 and then the movie came out a year after which is super fast and i love that it happens so close like edgeen gets arrested psycho comes out psycho the film comes out a year later Mm -hmm. 1983 so we got a big gap till psycho 2 psycho 3 comes out only a few years after that a year after that there was a telefilm a made-for-tv movie called Bates Motel which I need to see Mm. because it was someone named Alex West which is cute because it reminds me of Alexandra West from Faculty of Horror Mm -hmm. um Alex West gets gifted or he inherits the Bates Motel from Norman who he was in the sanitarium with and we'll come back to him being in the sanitarium because then it goes on with Psycho 4 and then the Psycho remake and then the 2013 television series Bates Motel, which mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of, which yeah. really ties into all of this from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderfully made show. I'm sure more people recently have seen Bates Motel than to see the film. So mm-hmm. I really highly recommend watching the film if you've been in Bates Motel land the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I have not seen it. You have told me uh, several times that this is something that I need to get on board with. And also, you had even mentioned that there's a lot of um, homages to the original film that are in the television show. So you might retroactively remember things. If you watch the, this movie from 1960, you'd be like, oh, that's just like Bates Motel. Well, obviously, that's 
was their intention in Bates Motel. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the lines, you know, they've cast Freddie Highmore just perfectly as a young Norman Bates. You really get over the fact that the series is modernized very quickly because it's just mm-hmm. done so fucking well. Like, mm-hmm. highly recommend watching the entire Psycho franchise. I did rewatch all of this uh, a year and a half ago or so when I wrote an article for TV media that ended up in the TV Times across Canada and the U.S. And... I couldn't do anything but sing the praises. Now, after Bates Motel had come out, a book called Psychosanitarium was published by the writer Chet Williamson, but it's also credited to a Sally A. Francie, and I'm not sure why it has two authors' names, but Chet Williamson wrote Psychosanitarium, which takes place in the sanitarium, which is a to this point, really mostly unexplored territory of Norman Bates. So if you want that whole picture of Norman Bates, you'd have got to go through not only the four Psycho films and the remakes and the miniseries and the television movie, but now Psycho Sanitarium as well. And the stacks of writing that are taller than me about stuffed birds. (laughs) Yeah, so obviously I think we've framed it all this way just to really, really, really emphasize the point This movie is fucking massive. It is more massive than people give it credit for. Yeah. Again, this is a film that people talk about the same way that people talk about Citizen Kane about being the greatest film ever made. Very few people talk about... I actually sat down and watched Citizen Kane. I feel like a lot of people talk more about the movie than actually experience it. And that's a shame. In regards to Psycho, another film that is considered by many to be one of the greatest of all time. This, uh, There are people that will tell you that this is the high point of Hitchcock's career. There are people that will tell you this is a high point for horror. And pack it in. It never got any better than this. This was the classy horror movie and that no one could be ashamed of because look how great it is. There are people that will tell you it's overrated. There are people that will tell you that it's not a horror movie. This comes from all sides. So I think it's a perfect film for us to talk about. The end. There was a point when we were watching this where you had said, if this was made nowadays, do you think they'd spend more time or show Norman doing strange things to her body? And my answer right off was, it depends on who's making the film. Mm -hmm. Because God knows there's all sorts of films devoted to what men will do hanging out with a dead body. Or even a, like a half-dead body, if you want to watch Dead Girl and see what happens, apparently, fictionally, in some filmmakers' points of view, what men will do with a, with a body. There's not enough uh, with reverse gender at all, I don't think. There's not enough uh, psychotic women getting to hang out with a male corpse for a long time. There's really not enough of that. But on Bind Torture Cast episode 130, Chris and I talked about his film Decay by Joseph Wharton Cheney. So when Wes had asked me, what do you think a modern filmmaker would do with this Norman Bates has a body and gets to spend time with it, you've really got to go and watch this film decay because that is really in the same universe. You want to talk about a guy that has very deep-seated mommy issues, has an affinity for taxidermy and is very good at it, even though it's not taxidermy and decay, it's uh, botany, he's a orchid... Um, breeding guy same sort of idea though and someone who is definitely of a fractured personality and ends up with this corpse in his house 
he gets to have a deep and meaningful relationship with it, much like we would envision that Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates would want from Janet Lee if he had had time with the body, if he hadn't disposed of the corpse right away, mm-hmm. what sort of things he would act out as far as having a girl at his disposal, which he's never had before. Because uh, we're pretty sure that Norman Bates is a virgin, right? And we're pretty sure there was some sort of incestuous thoughts going on there. So all that's been steeping for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think Decay is another addition. And there's probably lots of films that you could tag on to the huge franchise, the sort of huge franchise that is Psycho. I really think Decay needs to live in that same house as well because it is that same sort of personality. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get started, I do want to have a little shout out and hello and a little thank you to Zach Andrews. He is the writer and director of Houses October Belt. So our last hmm. episode that we'd promoted on Twitter, he checked it out. So that's pretty cool. And thank you for clicking like on our Twitter machine. Mm, yeah. I, I hope that he enjoyed the show. You know what I mean? Because like, as much as we do talk in the first half of the show about how a lot of the writing between the characters and the, a lot of the talking is just garbage and annoying, the last half we definitely stand up and applaud his writing because the end of that film is really something. Yeah, yeah. And I, I hope anyone understands that anytime that we're criticizing things, as harsh as we can come off sometimes, uh, always know that it comes from a place of love. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And we never like shit on things just to shit on things like so many people on the internet. And I know that directors, writers, actors sift through so much other shit. So there's nothing we could ever say yeah. that would be offensive. But I think it's really fucking cool. Like when the guy that created the statuettes and the Mr. Jones. things in Mr. Jones, yeah, when he reached out to us, that was super cool. Yeah. Spending time talking to Joseph Warnocheni about Decay when Chris and I did the episode. So like talking to people that create films, like... Brilliant. Mm-hmm. I, unfortunately, we won't be able to talk to Alfred Hitchcock anytime soon. No, no, he's been dead for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what he would think of Bates Motel, though. I do think that quite often when I'm watching it. It 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 is interesting to think about what he would want to do. But again, he never he died never seeing any of the progressions of Psycho. It's almost as if they waited for him to die before they made Psycho too. That's why there's such a huge gap. They might have, because he had the angries. Oh, he yeah, definitely absolutely. was an angry, angry man sometimes. So, yeah, and he could his opinion was gold, and people listened to him. So, if he decided something was garbage, I mean, millions of people mm. would have agreed with him. My first exposure to Alfred Hitchcock was with uh, Hitchcock Presents, uh, oh. a television series that was on uh, fuck before I was born, but I had no idea. I used to watch it when I was a kid on our sci-fi channel here called Space. I used to always get a kick out of it. It was all right. It was kind of um, it was kind of like Ray Bradbury theater to me. It was kind of not as cool as Twilight Zone or Outer Limits, but it was on, so I watched it. My grandmother read the Alfred Hitchcock's magazine and um, Ellery Queen and stuff like that. She'd watch Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but nine times out of ten, she and I would get together and watch his intro mm-hmm. and then kind of giggle about whatever it was he had to say because he's so dark humor, mm-hmm. right? And it was always so morbid, usually, and then... I'd go off and do whatever kid things and come back for the end of the show to see his outro. And sometimes my grandmother would fuck off too and not watch the show, but come back to see Alfred Hitchcock himself. I was definitely in the same headspace. I cared more about seeing Alfred Hitchcock because even though I didn't really have a full grasp on 
who he was and I had never seen any other Hitchcock movies. I'd never, I'd, but, but I knew that he was responsible for the birds yeah. and I knew that he was responsible for psycho. Those were the two movies that I knew for sure. It wasn't until I got older, I understood this guy's contribution to film that uh, I said to myself, Oh, I see. Yes. The master of suspense indeed. And when I finally got around to watching Psycho for the very first time, I remember I watched it because I had seen clips of the the remake coming out. And I guess because the remake was coming out, uh, they decided to play the old one on TV. I guess they're like, hey, the new one's coming out. Let's show the old one to get people ready. And as I finally was watching it, I realized... Even though this is the first time I've ever seen this film, I felt like I had seen it a thousand times because I didn't realize how many scenes from, like we were saying, Saturday morning cartoons to other films have paid homage to this movie. And so, so many things seemed so familiar to me at the time, even though it was my first experience watching the film when I was quite young and quite young, I was probably like encroaching on a teenager i was tween years probably mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it really it, it, i was really struck by how familiar it seemed even though i had never seen it before i don't even remember the, the first time i watched psycho honestly because it was it was on tv so much when i was a kid i know i watched the birds with my grandmother at yeah. one point i know that but i don't even remember how old i was because there was so much hitchcock in the house yeah. at all times I definitely read Hitchcock and watched the television show somewhere and among the same time I would have watched any of his films. Which is also why I really wish Amy were here. I wish, 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 wish we could invoke Amy or if I could just like download her from her brain like the Matrix. Because she is a Hitchcock expert, being the film studies expert that she is and moving ever so slowly toward being Dr. Vosper, a doctor of film and horror film specifically. So I wish that she were here because she would have so much fun with us talking Hitchcock and horror. Mm-hmm. So what the fuck is this movie even about? A psycho. A psycho. Case closed. <laughs> Blackest Eyes, do you know that whole speech? Sam Loomis, right? This is a different, right? is a different Loomis. What? Yeah. What? Don't we have a psychiatrist that breaks it all down for us? Well, well, hang on a second. We do. (laughs) We definitely have that. Yeah. I do like the little tiny thing, the Sam Loomis thing. Yes, there's a Loomis. There's a totally different Loomis. And no, he's not the psychiatrist. But we meet Sam. We meet Sam Loomis and Marion Crane. And they are um, impassioned lovers. And you would think by their conversation that someone's cheating on someone. It's stepping out. Or there's something going on. What's up here? Because it seems like a, a tryst, of it, if anything. But no, the complicated situation, which is a non-issue as far as I'm concerned, but maybe in 1960 it was an issue, is the idea that Sam is divorced. He doesn't have a lot of money. He st- keeps having to send what little money he does have as alimony checks to his ex-wife. And Marion is just an independent woman of 1960 proper. And he feels like they can't be together or be married because he lives in the store that he works at and doesn't have a lot of cash and is indebted to his ex-wife. And and I just keep saying, and, and, and here he has Marion. And I cannot understate enough. Janet Lee, beautiful woman saying, let's get married. Let's be together. 
And he's just like, I can't. I'm so... All these outdated notions butting up against really modern ideas, right? Because the idea of alimony itself freaks me out. I don't understand why it exists. And like, I don't know, whatever. I don't think alimony should exist. It's stupid. It's a stupid idea. Um, but he wants to provide for and feels he can't, period. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the story. And everyone in, in town would just pillory him for wanting to try and provide for a woman on what, such meager income, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that mindset back then that he isn't man enough to provide for her, therefore should just while away single for the rest of his life. But we know what whiling away single for the rest of your life does, don't we, Norman Bates? So we don't want that. But he loves her. He doesn't know what to do because he's stuck being broke mm-hmm. doesn't deserve her even jokingly chides her about finding someone else where the very modern idea that that's but right up against is her being um like a working girl and mm-hmm. she is a modern woman and she is an independent woman and she's a strong thinking woman and she loves him very much isn't afraid to say so doesn't need to be provided for doesn't give a shit if he has no money so those two things are like really really crashing up against one another so it's of course it's crashing up against one another from our modern point of view where we're like yeah dumbass just marry her it doesn't matter yeah Yeah. he'll do fine yeah he seems to think that if he waits for his ex-wife to get remarried and then she doesn't have to send or he doesn't just send the alimony checks anymore then everything will be fine and i'm just like why wait she's clearly saying that this doesn't bother her and she loves you she's gorgeous she's intelligent you're dumb you're dumb i think dumb. given time he'd have warmed up to the idea yeah perhaps but you know what things don't get warm in psycho they just go cold and marion decides to do something about it and one of the things that i like so much about her decision is oh she is a secretary and her boss is about to broker a fairly significant deal with some rich <laughs> texan stereotype yeah who Flirts with her, flashes cash of the sum of $40,000. $40,000. Two fat stacks. Oh. 40 large, which in the modern parlance is about $320,000. We did the math with the- Now it sounds like a lot. Now it sounds like a lot of money. You'll see inflation happening here with not only that, but gas mileage later on. But yeah. Um, the Texan is is pretty cool, and like you said, a very stereotype. And and this scene is pretty interesting because her boss, you know, Marion has worked there for a decade. Uh, she's well trusted. Here's forty thousand dollars cash. She wants to go home early with a headache. He says, "Drop the money off at the bank and go home." Yeah, it's all good. I've been handed all large sums of money to, to deal with from. Workers, the secretaries are trusted with all sorts of stuff like that. That's really normal. Exactly. And so instead, she goes home and we see her packing a bag and she's staring at the envelope with the two stacks of cash in it. And then she gets in her car and then she heads on out and she's driving out of Phoenix towards California. Just like that. Just like that. And we get a sense of these conversations that she's imagining are happening in her head. Now, by the way, she does happen to see her boss while she's driving out of town. And he kind of gives her a bit of a double take, but I guess thinks nothing of it. And Well, in 10 years, someone's bound to play hooky at least once. Maybe she was going to the pharmacy to get more pain medication for her headache. There's a lot of rational explanations for it, especially when he's out having a drink with this guy. You know, he has it's a very lucrative deal like he gives a shit yeah, he's right? got other stuff in his mind it's just odd that he saw his secretary who was supposed to have dropped money off at the bank but whatever you know it's just odd 
And that's the look on his face is just, what are you doing here? That's just weird. Anyway. And I guarantee you, if she never went missing, he probably wouldn't even have, he he probably forgot completely about it. Totally. Um, If she hadn't have gone missing, which she does, she's driving off. And right now we get the sense that with this amount of money, what she's planning to do is present it to her boyfriend and say, look, this is our life together. This is what I want to be married to you. You're having financial problems. Here's $40,000. Our fucking problems are over. Let's just go. She starts talking about buying a private island later on, which is kind of funny to me. But then you think about $300,000. Like, I know where you could get a, like a, a decent island, not down south anywhere. A cold, tiny, desolate, crummy Canadian island for maybe $100,000. So sure. Okay. Yeah. She's going to buy a private island with her $300,000, which in the money back then was... $40,000. But you definitely get the sense that this is not premeditated at all. No, very, she's a shitty criminal. She's a very shitty criminal. She goes to sleep off at the side of the road and a cop rolls up and she just acts as suspicious as humanly possible. Yeah. He gets her details, you know, and sees her driver's license, but not before she acts extremely... Like, if I were a highway patrol officer and someone turned away from me the way she turns away from me to retrieve her license from her purse, I'd be like, hold it right there, step out of the car, and I would retrieve the purse while holding a fucking gun on her. I don't know. She's acting very fucking strange. Mm -hmm. Very fucking strange. Continually repeating that she's in a hurry. I haven't broken any laws. Can I go now? He wants to make sure that she can prove that the vehicle is hers, not stolen, because she, something's off and she is not doing anything to dissuade his suspicion whatsoever. She, she just keeps it, insisting that she wants to leave. She is right in a way that, you know what, if you're not charging with anything, you have no reason to stop me, I can go. Mm-hmm. Like, But on the other hand, she should just comply and get out of his face, right? Yeah. It could have been a, like a, a like a, a passive ten minute conversation, and all of this would have been fine. Yeah, it would have been unnoticed. But we see another example of that later on too, with like just comply, just answer the fucking questions; they'll go away. Mm-hmm. These are shitty criminals. They've never watched a crime drama or read a crime novel in their life. <laughs> now, she does roll up into a nearby town, and she decides that what she's going to do is go to a car dealership, and she wants to swap her vehicle out. She probably gets the idea that she just wants a different light. Well, she wants a different license plate. She wants a different make of her vehicle. Then she can, she's already been stopped by a police officer once, but this cop is fucking following. Which is just weird to me that she doesn't notice his cruiser parked at the end of the driveway of the car dealership. And he's very obviously just staring daggers at her. Yeah. With his big aviators on and shit. So that, if she would have turned around, it would have been like, well, I guess I don't need to buy a new car. I'll just like shake this guy tailing me and then buy a new car because this is not going to work yeah exactly and even though that the guy at the dealership is pressing her for all kinds of questions she again is very suspicious i'm in a hurry i want to leave i don't want to test drive this thing i just want the car he asks her three times if she wants to fucking test drive it if not more times and i'm just sitting there kind of screaming internally like just test drive the car ease his suspicions you're coming across as suspicious he might as well just say to you, you are very suspicious. I think you're even more suspicious if you don't test drive the fucking car. Just test drive the fucking car. And she's like, is not is there a problem with someone being in a hurry? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? But she doesn't test drive the car. And she goes and sneaks into the ladies' room and sneaks out some money from her stacks of paper cash. Yeah, fat stacks. Fat stacks of paper <laughs> cash. Which I also, like, 
have you never seen a fucking crime drama? Don't just keep the money wadded up like that. That's crazy in the envelope that's getting crumpled because you keep sweaty palms pawing through it. Just peel off a fucking couple of bills and put them in your billfold and hide the rest of the money in the fucking glove box, you dumbass. Mm -hmm. Whatever. Sorry. It's very, very annoying to me. It's pretty annoying. She does peel off 700 bucks to cover the distance of the car. Gets herself a new vehicle, and she's off to the races. Which makes sense. It's about what you said, five grand in today's cash. So yeah, with a trade-in on her car. Yeah. yeah. She gets a decent little vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. But as fate would have it, it's night, it's raining, and she decides to pull over at the only hotel that is around. The Bates Motel. Now, she thought it was off the main highway, but it's not anymore. She used to be on the main highway. But they built another highway. Maybe yeah. one of those newfangled super highways. Once the new highway came in, you know, 12 rooms, 12 vacancies. That's the reality of Bates Motel nowadays. And I thought it was weird because you figure going from Phoenix to Fairville, it's an 11 hour drive according to Google Maps. Mm-hmm. Right? This is what we do, guys. Yeah, this is what we This is how we deconstruct films while we're watching them. We don't yell at the TV very much. We silently Google facts Yeah. from the crowd. Um, 11 hour drive. Do you really need to sleep over two nights? No. She slept on the side of the road the first night and slept in a hotel second night. You know, that's not a three day drive. It's really not. It's an 11 hour drive. And I thought, okay, well, she's, she's a woman that doesn't make a lot of road trips. Maybe that's hard on her, but I'm like, nah, you could definitely push five hours, four hours, six hours easy without having to spend the night. But then I thought, okay. The cars were heavier, heavier, right? And slower. Maybe the speed limit was slower. Um, those windshield wipers are doing nothing for her in the rain that night. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a lot to do with it. Um, she maybe didn't seem to do a lot of driving. Maybe she dicked around and had meals or something when she swapped out her car. Who knows how much time she wasted. But in 1930s, my family, the storm side of the family, traveled from welland to shillington northern ontario so they traveled from the south to the north and it took them three days to make this trip that's probably an eight hour nine hour drive maybe gotcha. oh maybe it's a 10 hour drive it's probably about a 10 hour drive but it took them three days and they had to bring a separate engine in case the engine died so they had another engine strapped on the top of this truck that they're moving all their worldly belongings it's fucking mind-boggling it is me. mind-boggling the engine did give out and as a matter of fact and they had to replace the engine somewhere just past north bay so halfway through this, what is now today, a 10-hour drive probably, it took them three days and they had to replace the engine in the car in the 30s. So in the 60s, an 11-hour drive taking three days, I don't know, maybe it all makes sense. To me, I think that it would have been, since this was such a spur-of-the-moment fucking thing, she got up early to go to work, she went to work, by the afternoon she started to make an 11-hour drive, it got night, she was tired, she decided to pull over for 15 minutes, Ended up sleeping all night and then continues on her journey. And then the last legs of it, she kind of got tired again. It was pouring rain. So she was like, fuck this. I'll just pull over at a motel for the night. Not even really realizing how close she was. So she probably drove 10 hours in that one single day alone with a short stop to swap out her car. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because she ends up being 15 miles from Fairvale, Mm -hmm. where the Bates Motel is. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is where we're introduced to Anthony Perkins' character of Norman Bates. And very quick on his feet, very charming, very nice and polite. He does kind of come off as lonely. 
and he does come off as very intrigued by Marion's presence. And he, we know this is because he... Has a giant boner. No. Although you might suspect that he's taping it down. He first says, well, you're in room... You're going to be in the cabin one right next to me in case you need anything. And then he asks her if she wants to come up to the house for some dinner. Just sandwiches and milk, which I know is your favorite food. Blah. <laughs> Double blah. But whatever. That is what a mama's boy would eat. Yeah, sandwiches and milk. He's been never learned to cook, I guarantee you. No, and that's what he's been fed all of his life, and that's what—that's the only thing he wants. Mm-hmm. Like a suckling pig. Ugh. So that's when they decide to have dinner together. But of course, uh, that's not going to go exactly as planned, because Marion is going to overhear from the fucking house somehow. Yeah, she might be just yelling up a storm, you know <laughs> what I mean? And it's on a hill, maybe the sound travels down there, but we can hear it really clearly. A lot of the arguments that they're having, like, you don't have the guts, boy, or whatever it is that she's screaming mm-hmm. at Norman, and Norman retaliating, making it really obvious that he is under the thumb oppressed by his mother Mm -hmm. big time and she does not like the idea of him bringing some woman over yeah that's not gonna happen so instead he brings the food to her and they go sit into his parlor from the spider to the fly and surrounded by all those taxidermy birds and then they have a very interesting conversation they have a little bit of a figurative conversation um about motivations and oppression and desire and all of these really like it's a really high concept conversation that they have after their conversation about how creepy taxidermy is mm-hmm. then they have this conversation that really speaks volumes to marion even though they say a lot without saying much at all and i love conversations like this in film it's not like a big long drawn out q a session he doesn't press her about her motivations her history who she is it's not one of these great big pour your heart out conversations it's a fairly brief friendly conceptual conversation which is really really well written and really really well done mm-hmm. and it kind of changes our mind it absolutely does which i suppose is the big irony about all of this uh bates has several uh tense moments in this conversation one where he talks about his mother one where she suggests putting him su- her someplace he has that very tense scene about you can't just get rid of people have you ever been to one of those places and everyone just calls these a madhouses someplace and they don't really understand even what they're saying this is also the fount of that wonderful line we all go a little mad sometimes um probably stemming from a lot of the conversation that they'd been having during this Mm -hmm. time about his mother Mm -hmm. and how she's not mean. She's not evil. He doesn't hate her. Mm -hmm. He loves her very much. Yeah. And the idea about very much staying in place because her idea, of course, is why don't you just get away? Yeah. Go leave. Go someplace. And his thought process is where would I go? But we know that this is very much Marion's point of view because this definitely seems to be a woman that has fantasized about going a place. And this is why in the spur of the moment, when someone slapped down 40 large in her hand, she thought that this was her ticket out of here. And then in that conversation, either by talking about the this feeling of... Uh, being ensnared in traps and and this idea of you know you can't go to an island someplace and and Bates's insistence that it's better to stay um she decides that she's not 
going any further. She's going back to Phoenix. Which is really cool. They didn't have a conversation like, yo, I stole $40,000. What do you think I should do? And he doesn't like lay it out for her. It's just this very figurative conversation. It has a lot more to do with his mm-hmm. mom that she takes a lot like, you know what? You're totally right. And she applies it to her own situation where she's very, very nervous about this $40,000. Yeah. Very worried about the life that she'd already built. And very, you know, has a lot of like, there's a lot of unknowns she's dealing with. So why deal with the unknown when you can stay where you are and where you're safe? So she does say, well, I've got a long drive ahead of me. I'm going back to Phoenix tomorrow, which tells the audience exactly what her, exactly what her goal is now, which isn't to run away and steal this money. She's going to do what she can to replace the money that she spent so far and go and apologize. Mm -hmm. When she leaves uh, Bates, this is when we get the first hint that something is probably very wrong with this dude because he pulls off a picture frame and stares at her while she's getting undressed for the shower. What's wrong with that? Well, Lydia, some people don't like to be stared at when they're in a motel room getting naked and then getting into a shower. They might feel like that might be an invasion of their privacy to know that the person who is hosting them is smacking it to their nude body. What the hell is wrong with you? I just assume that I'm under surveillance 24-7 and I would say conduct myself accordingly, which means undressing and not giving a fucking shit about what people are seeing because you can't anymore because big brother is watching let alone the guy whacking in on the other side of the fucking hotel room first of all i love it when you call me big brother and second of all i told you i took the webcams out of your fucking bathroom like i trust you like i fucking (laughs) trust you when people freak out about surveillance cameras in change rooms and stuff i'm like well what the fuck do you expect you're gonna steal their shit you know like fuck they gotta keep an eye on you somehow and if it's gonna be an eye on your naked body who cares who cares anymore i don't care anymore so yeah this public service brought to you by the man and sponsored by the establishment yeah yeah just just get naked who cares there's a camera on you it doesn't matter Camera on you 24-7. You know what I mean? What the fuck? Go ask people in fucking nice London, England about what it's like to have cameras on you all the time. You get used to it. So it doesn't really strike me as weird. Well, okay. Maybe in 1960 it was weird that this guy had like a carved out hole that he could look at her in. I'm half joking. I know. <laughs> only half joking. Only half joking. In the film Trash Fire just recently, you could just see the backwards view of that where a female spies on another female and jerks off like even though norman bates we're making jokes about his giant boner and jerking off there's none of that he's a chaste as a lamb he has no idea what sex even is um but we get to see a little bit of that in the movie trash fire which was so fucking enjoyable to me i don't want to sit here and whack off over a fucking trash fire too hard but shit that's a really good movie and of course bind torture cast covered it so i yeah it's okay definitely like that episode but like it's neat to see that girl being voyeuristic on somebody and doing what norman bates isn't doing but flat out jerking off this brings us to one of the most famous scenes in cinema history the the iconic shower scene that has been talked about uh to death we i will say this about the scene it is absolutely fascinating to watch it is brilliantly shot uh the the score obviously has become iconic it is deep-rooted into the zeitgeist. There's people that have never seen Psycho that quote the theme. Yeah. This violin, the screeching violins. Uh, it's being used in Simpsons episodes for crying yeah. out loud. If people, if you bring your hand up and do, and pantomime, stabbing the air while going, wee, 
everybody knows what you're doing. Everybody knows what you're doing. Yeah, you found a carrot. I found a carrot, yes. Oh, my God. I'm glad you like Foster's Home of Imaginary Friends. (laughs) Someone had, of course, seen that clip and sent it to me immediately back, like, years and years ago. Um, Not only because I apparently reminded them of Cheese, but they were too afraid to say anything until they saw Cheese had found a carrot and came to show one of his friends while his friend was in the shower. Of course, he's brandishing it like a knife and screaming, I found a carrot. Um, in tune with the violin, shrieking violins. He's saying, I found a carrot with like, like shrieking violins. So it reminded them of me because I'm a horror fan. That's all it fucking took. If you're a horror fan, then all their brain is thinking is reet, reet, reet with the fucking knife stabbing, right? Just because you're a horror fan. Yes. That's how entwined with horror that this shower scene is. That is very much true. What comes next is what I'm assuming is your favorite moment is Norman Bates realizing what his mother has done because that is the reveal, the shadowed reveal of a woman's figure brandishing the knife and then the conversation of Norman Bates screaming, mother, what have you done? No. And then blood, 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 blood and running towards and then seeing Marion's body for the first time reeling at the, the grisliness of her death. And then, of course, dutifully going to work and cleaning up. The cleaning up is definitely my favorite because I that mop bucket. I don't know what it is with the mop buckets, but I got this thing for the mop buckets. I also really like Janet Lee's look on her face, the open eye death. I really enjoy everything about that. Uh, she has some very nice mascara going on. Mm-hmm. A very, very nice mascara. <laughs> I think that's one of those things that when I was a little kid, it's like I'm not trying to not think about the death or the blood I just saw in the water and all those things. like And the way your hand is clutching out, which is heart-wrenching even still on repeat viewings. That scene is heart-wrenching. Seeing like Jamie Lee Curtis even doing similar shots and she's like replicated this, this the look of the shower scene and the screaming for photographs not too long ago, which was really cool to see. It is still that fucking touching. But as a little kid, I was like, trying to not think of death, trying to not look at those staring dead eyes. That mascara, though, I would like focus in on that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is It is all my favorite scene, the whole fucking thing, let alone the cleaning, from the eyeball to the mop bucket. Mm-hmm. And the devil's in the details because uh, Norman Bates really uh, gets everything squared away, gets all of her clothes, mops everything up. Gets rid of the car into that swampy mud puddle. Even uh, takes that big old bundle of cash, which uh, Marion had hid, rolled up in a newspaper, tossed it into the back of the trunk. Doesn't even know it's cash. Doesn't even know it's cash. He doesn't clean behind the toilet seat, though. Like the toilet tank, like on the floor by the toilet. He missed the most important spot. And if he's a hoteler, like he really is, he would know to clean that toilet like a motherfucker because people are gross. Mm -hmm. But he is in a rush, I guess. Dead bodies more important than... Errant pubes behind the toilet tank, but whatever. I'll let it slide because he's cute. There's that that he has going for him. And that is about, we're almost an hour into this film, and that is what would have made audience real. Real the idea that Janet Lee had died. And looking back on it, it is quite insane. Even though other filmmakers have copied this scene, did a, a loving homage to the idea of introducing a female protagonist that you believe is going to be the main character of the film, and then they kill her off, and then we're actually introduced to the real heroine of the film. None of them have pulled the taffy as long as Hitchcock. No, an hour spent with our not-final girl. And I wonder if 
anybody nowadays would even put up with it because you'll get five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe even 15 minutes at maximum. It's usually one to two scenes. And even uh, Tina in Nightmare on Elm Street, that is a couple of scenes with her, but it's not that much. And 30 minutes into the movie, that character is long gone and we've moved on from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hitchcock did this because he was fucking Alfred Hitchcock. And at the height of his power, he could do whatever the hell he wanted. No one was going to question him, even though people questioned his motivation of making a horror film at all, because that was sort of the realm of low budget cinema. He still had enough clout to end. I think he'd just come off North by Northwest or something at that point, Mm -hmm. too. So Mm -hmm. it just wasn't what people were expecting from him at all. No. And so, you know, what are you going to tell? And like Hitchcock being notoriously bombastic and egotistical and, and, and a fighter, especially when he was doing his vision, um, would not have backed down on the idea of killing off your heroine so late in a film because the audience might feel that they got gypped. They came here to see Janet Lee and she got killed. But it is the perfect misdirect because at this point we're introduced to the real heroine of this film. More or less Lila. Lila. Yeah, I like Lila, and it's helpful that they look alike. So I think that would have like eased the pain of the audience a little tiny bit. You just could have replaced her with another blonde. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and it's her sister, so we can we we can like more easily slip into that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're more easily we're more comfortable with the idea of Sam spending time posing as husband and wife with his lover's sister. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing with like. The not being able to answer the questions of authority where I'm screaming, just comply with the cop. You have a moment like that later when people start coming around Bates Motel mm. and asking questions. Norman's a much better criminal than Marion ever was, mm-hmm. but he still fucks up. He does make a, a big mistake. Now, the they don't get the police involved. They get a private investigator from the fucking planet Neptune named Arbogast or whatever. Arbogast. Arbogast himself. And he comes up sniffing around because of obviously their initial reaction is going to be, well, she took the money and she ran. And so the money and what happened to Miriam and what is she doing with the money is the the motivational factor to all these other characters. It has to be about the money. It always has to be about the money. They can't fathom that the money has nothing to do with it. Which but, is so cute for us as the audience, because up until this point, the money was just a point of tragedy. And the fact that she had given up on stealing this money and was going to return it, it's kind of like the last thing we're worried about. And all of a sudden, there's all these people that are like, what about the money? What about the money? And you're like, I don't give a fuck about the money. The money's in, in the trunk of the car. And even Norman Bates didn't even know it was there. So as the audience, you're just like, I don't care about the money. Mm -hmm. But they're trying to figure out what happened. So Lila and Arbogast go to Sam Loomis, her boyfriend, that they figure that she would have gone there. They're convinced that she has to at least be in town. He must know something about this. But he is as shocked as anybody else and genuinely worried. So while Arbogast goes off to find whatever lead he possibly can, and what he decides to do is... Basically, go to motels. And it's not like, well, what made him go to base motel? Whatever. He went to a thousand just like it. Yeah. And, they have a montage to illustrate the, that yeah. fact. He basically goes, and this is where Bates fucks up the way that I'm just like, oh, dude, you're killing me. Just he, answer the questions. Just be truthful. Because he denies it. He denies that he ever saw Marion, that no one has been up to the 
motel for weeks and then of course starts stumbling over his own lies and i'm like to a dude that was so fucking meticulous and careful with getting rid of all the evidence why wouldn't you have gotten rid of that uh, registration that she filled out or why would you not just say yeah 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 she was uh she was here yeah i know that woman uh yeah here's a registration she signed under a different name i don't know what happened to her well she showed up she registered she paid her money she left in the morning. I don't know. That's what people do. This is what my... I don't ask where people are going. Yeah, it's, it's a fucking motel. It's a motel. It's like I we, we talked for a little while. I gave her some food. If, you, if, like, if he was open and honest with this guy from the get-go, the guy would have gotten all the information he possibly could, and then he would have left because there would have been nothing suspicious. All he has to do is just leave out the last part where he's like, and then I killed her. <laughs> exactly because for beforehand yeah. it was a very the whole story as just as you related yeah except the one tiny lie of saying that she left that's it that's it because mm-hmm. uh, her car's taken care of quite flawlessly taken care of every killer needs a mud pit like this oh my god really like it's the car is fucking gone so everything's been taken care of he fucking fucks up though probably because he's nervous lies like you said trips over his own lies says no one's been in for weeks someone was in last week and then of course the detective because he's a detective figures this out he's a sample of her handwriting and gets to compare the false name she left to her handwriting sample which makes him sweat even worse because mm-hmm. he does this right yeah. in front of him yeah. and he starts really fucking up and it turns into this messy conversation where i don't know why the detective didn't right away just interrogate him fully yeah yeah um when when Arbogast checks out uh, Bates' house, he sees that there's a silhouette there, and he's saying that it's his. He says that first Bates says that he lives alone and there's no one around, and then he says, "Oh, it's his mother and it's very ill." Arbogast maybe suspects that either it's the mother and he talked to her, or it's Marion and she's hiding there. Also, because um, this is where the cracks in Bates' psyche become even more apparent because. He says something like, did she strike you as a wrong person? And he was, or something like, did he, did she fool you? Are you mad because she fooled you into thinking she was a good person? And he's like, oh, she might have fooled me, but she didn't fool mother. So he has this like slip, this horrible slip that kind of dooms him into suspicion. All because it was like his mother who had convinced that she must be killed because she was like a filthy girl that was going to steal him away. Mm-hmm. Which is just a fucked up notion, but that tiny slip is all that the detective needs to suspect him even more. Mm-hmm. He makes a call to Lila and uh, and uh, says, not only does he believe now that Sam doesn't know where Marion is, but he's going to ask a couple of more questions. He's like, there's something about this motel. There's something here. It doesn't all fit. I'm going to dig a little bit Yeah, he's deeper. convinced that the mother has spoke or spoke to or seen Marion. Yeah. And so he goes up to the house and... We get to see the interior of this big, beautiful house, which I know you love. I love this house. It Mm. is beautiful. And it's another great reason to watch the series because they really spend a lot more time in the house. And the house is done pretty much impeccably, exactly the same. Um, It is a beautiful, beautiful country home, basically. So it's a small mansion. And I really, really love the aesthetic of this house, even in black and white. I don't need to know what colors these things are. I know what colors these things are. Mahogany. (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Um, so this is where Arbogast meets his end on the stairs, a very iconic shot of him falling backwards as the camera follows him. Very unique, but also very um, old-fashioned at the same time. And I remember 
watching the remake and seeing that scene obviously it's a shot for shot remake everybody knows that Mm -hmm. but i didn't realize that until i was watching that scene where i was like oh my god this is a shot for shot remake because this very interesting but very dated uh film technique has been duplicated impeccably it's this this vertigo inducing camera follow down the stairs which is great and i like it i like that scene quite a bit and it also lends the killer a little bit more bravado and a little bit more brutality there's mm-hmm. a lot more not to say the shower scene wasn't brutal but we didn't really get to see a lot of how quick or tough this killer is and how ruthless this is a ruthless quick tough killer who will just fucking stab someone in the face and shove them down the stairs that's pretty crazy mm-hmm. absolutely psycho maybe a little bit too psycho mm-hmm. now we get scenes with norman and his mother again saying that people are coming to the house and i have to hide you not in the cellar. The fruit cellar. You think I'm fruity, huh? Which is such a hilarious <laughs> line. Um, I'd read somewhere that Hitchcock thought of this as a, as a dark comedy. And you can never tell with his sense of humor if he was just being a darkly comedic saying that. But there are quite a few scenes. When we're watching the car sink and the car stops sinking and Norman gets kind of worried, I think that's hilarious. I'll always think that's hilarious. And then the car continues to sink and he's like, oh, good. (laughs) I don't have to do whatever, a good jump on the top like in a cartoon or whatever. Mm -hmm. I I love that scene. And I like the fruity quip. You think I'm fruity. Because it's a play on his apparent cross-dressing. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. which hasn't been apparent at this point. But when you think about it later or upon multiple viewings, you're going to be like, oh, is she making fun of him? Now that uh, Arbogast hasn't been contacting Lila in a little bit, they start to get nervous. And Lila is much like her sister, except I would definitely say, even though I don't think Marion was an unintelligent woman, I still think Lila is the smart sister. Lila, if not Sam himself, too, have definitely watched a crime drama, read a police detective novel, because they seem to know a little bit more about fucking interrogation, following clues, following leads, mm-hmm. and just how crime works. And 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 uh, even though Sam's saying that if Arbogast had found anything, he would have contacted us, Lila has the absolutely pitch-perfect logic of, like, he called us when he had nothing... If he had something and he was following a lead, and that's why he's not contacting us, he would have told me. Exactly. And so that sets her off as like, look, we're not that far away. It's an hour drive away or whatever. Let's go check it out. Which is still crazy to me because they clearly say that it's 15 miles between Fairvale and the motel, which is not an hour drive. Well, they got to stop for a picnic or something. Whatever people did in 1960. Yeah, they're motorists. They're motorists. Yeah, put on their goggles, fingerless gloves, and scarf flapping in the breeze go get their tires vulcanized (laughs) vulcanized (laughs) full of petroleum desolate post haste (laughs) post haste um so and and this is the interesting part where the film really starts to seem like it's wrapping up quickly because we have all of our players now coming to the bates motel they pose as a couple and they are basically the idea is Lila is convinced that something is going on up at the house and they are even more convinced that something strange is going on because of the fact that they try to contact the local sheriff. The sheriff is a really good um, insert here too because while everyone is like, oh, the detective, there must be something wrong because the detective 
would have contacted us. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to get away from the idea that the money is the big motivator here with all the other characters. And the sheriff comes in and brings it all back to us, like Mm -hmm. saying that, well, the detective probably didn't contact you because he has gone off after Marion and the money so Mm -hmm. he can get the money for himself. And he starts to not even care what's happened to Marion. He's like, this detective is taking you for a ride. Mm -hmm. And lays out for them a little bit more history about Norman Bates and maybe Mm -hmm. how this is a yet another weird incident happening at that hotel because 10 years later something weird happened in that hotel mm-hmm. and very like freaks them out a little bit by saying like if you're saying that you saw norman bates's mother and you're going up there to talk to norman bates's mother i don't know how you're going to do that because she's laying in the cemetery and has been for 10 years throughout the film we understand that like you know bates's mother found a gentleman uh, after her husband had passed away and she had he had convinced her to build the motel and and uh, so they were seeing each other and then uh, he died and then the shock was too much for her. But these people are saying that both of them had died and that Norman Bates had discovered the bodies. Yeah, in bed. In bed. In bed. In bed. In bed. In bed. Whispered hush tones in bed. In bed. And then, but then, just when we could maybe start putting the pieces together, that like, well, wait a second. Who's the person in the window? Who has he been talking to? The sheriff also adds, well, if... If if, that, th- if that's Mrs. Bates, who's, who's in the fucking coffin? Who's in the, the coffin? And that is the perfect last misdirect for this film because just when we're starting to think that the problem might be one thing, we are starting to think now that there is someone at the house. So who is at the house? Moments later, we see Norman carrying his invalid mother downstairs. We don't see much. It's an overhead shot, but it's still like he is carrying a human downstairs and having a conversation with her. So we're like, well, who is in the fucking coffin? Or who is that? Is this an imposter? Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or is there something else? For example, was the Norman Bates's mother, new boyfriend, having an affair? And did those two people get killed as opposed to her? And for some reason, she faked her own death. Like, we're not sure exactly what the fuck has happened. We do know that his mother, as far as we know up until this point, is a, is a woman hater. Mm-hmm. A fucking woman hater. Mm-hmm. Killed a girl in a shower. Mm-hmm. Killed a dude looking for her. Mm-hmm. Like... That's the the snapshot we're getting and screams at her son all the fucking time. Her poor son, who has been fed nothing but milk and sandwiches all of his life and is afraid to even say the word bathroom in the presence of a woman. Like, yeah, a very messy little web that's been woven right here. Absolutely. Now, Lila and Sam take matters into their own hand. The sheriff has been up there. Nothing. There's nothing out of the ordinary. And he doesn't need to fucking think anything's wrong anyways. He thinks that this is all about the money. The people have taken off. This is, and that's the end of the story. And Bates has nothing to do with this. They take matters into their own hand and they're going to the hotel themselves. And they're going to pose as a married couple. And they're trying to really antagonize. Sam especially is really trying to antagonize Bates and trying to shake him up. And almost like telling him, like, we know the whole story. We know everything yeah. that happened. So you might as well admit, where's Marion? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, basically. And Lila wants to talk to the mother. Yeah. And so Sam decides to distract Bates after they get their room because they search cabin one, even though they don't take cabin one, they search it and they find a scrap of paper that she failed to just, uh, that uh, Marion failed to flush. And while Lila says, well, that proves she was here. And they, they, you know, Sam reminds her, well, no one's denying that she was here. That's not the problem. The problem is, is we don't know where she is now. 
And so Lila decides to go up to the house to talk to Bates's mother. And it's a really great sequence going through because this is the first really good look that we've had at Bates's mother's room. So mother's room, everything's just so. The bed is creepy. There's like an indent where she's been lying. There's um a little container with the resting hands, which I think container ashes actually on the dressing table. So to me coming in, you're like, oh shit, this woman's definitely dead. Um, maybe it doesn't click in Lila's head. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't know, but she's still looking for Mrs. Bates going around the house. It can tell someone's been lying in that bed anyway, and continues to search more of the house at this point. Norman has figured out that Lila's up in the fucking house mm-hmm. and clocks Sam over the head, which is the only like moment of real deep distress and anger. Like we see him edging into anger mm-hmm. and like trembling face, twitching eyes, things like that. When he's talking about his mom, when people start pushing him or like suggesting that he hates his mom or suggesting he put her away, we don't really see any like anger. As soon as he's like, my mother's in trouble. This woman is has breached the house and is bothering my mother. He clocks Sam over the head and goes running for the house. Mm-hmm. This brings us to um, when Bates comes in and Lila hides in the stairwell just going down to the fruit cellar, um, which is a cute thing that I guess a house that old would have. And then she, instead of going out the front door, feels compelled and motivated to go deep down into the fruit cellar and because he runs upstairs which is good and she wouldn't have had a chance to just run out the door very typical horror thing right there where you do have a chance for escape but no instead traverse deeper into the bowels of the killer's underworld mm-hmm. very gothic mm. and when she goes into the fruit cellar there she sees mrs bates sitting with her back to her shocked to see her there she says oh mrs bates and then reaches for her and then we have that slow turnaround and boom, we have a very badly decomposed, mummified, practically, uh, woman. And as that's happening, we hear screeching, and then we see Bates appear dressed in a dressed as his mother with a wig on, with a wig on, brandishing a knife, brandishing a knife, lunging towards Lila. Sam, who has managed to come to, interrupts it, and then the struggle, and then the shot back to uh, Mrs. Bates's corpse and then boom, we're in a police station. Yeah. We could have actually ended the movie there with just Norman's agonized look torn between his two realities of Norman and Mrs. Bates all presiding in one tortured body fed nothing but milk and sandwiches all of its life, you know, <laughs> and, and it's really sad because it's, you can sort of see it written on Sam and Lila's face. Like, Oh my gosh, we've never encountered a man in a dress. Mm-hmm. We've never encountered a killer like this who was who's obviously we've not we've really danced around the idea that Marion's dead. They haven't talked about it. They say that she's being taken care of. She's gone. Abigas has been stopped. Yeah, Abigas has been stopped, not but, killed. Like, yeah, and 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 like us as a modern audience are just like what the fuck is By stopped you, you mean dead, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah, and, it's like he got the money away from her somehow. I'm like somehow. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Marion's missing. Now, it's written on their face right there like, oh, fuck, this poor guy is is fucking psycho. Wink, wink. And has definitely just killed everyone. You could really end the movie there, but no, we get 
some Sam Loomis, blackest eyes, a devil's eyes kind of talk. And I love this. You, you're shaking your head no, Wes. It's too, it, I feel like this is very much indicative of the time in which this film came out. I think that the amount of... So, gang, just so you know, they introduced to us a, a psychiatrist character that I was just finished talking to, the mother, and and then proceeds to explain precisely what had actually happened in Norman Bates's past, what happened with Miriam and Abagast, and the the psyche of it. I don't know if it's the psychiatrist's performance. I don't know if I feel like the scene goes on way too long. It is just too much exposition dump. It's too much. Do you feel like it's like one of those stupid articles, like the end of it follows, explained? Something like that. I think that this movie, um, whereas it introduced some groundbreaking concepts in film and horror, it also felt like perhaps I need to... Just so there's no confusion, guys. Yeah. This is exactly what this film means. This is exactly what happened. Don't have to put anything together yourself. This is here on a plate. But I kind of like how they... Because I would worry at that time that they're like, oh, well, he was just gay and wore a dress and it made him crazy so he killed people. So I'm glad they really backpedal and be like, no, wait transvestites are completely different and this isn't what was happening he has a multiple personality disorder and the stronger personality the battle axe mother has taken over Mm -hmm. and he needs to really believe she's still alive like i love this scene and also at the time uh, being an audience in this theater you'd have been fucking stunned and i think 20 minutes of psychobabble would have been very welcome to just soothe you with a little normalcy Right? Because it would have been a real gut punch. I will give it to you that the scene is not... It, like, I, I do... Okay. I will contend to you that I agree that audiences at the time probably would have heavily misinterpreted it. And in the plus side of this scene, uh, being as explanatory as it is, is that there is no room for fucking interpretation. No. They tell you precisely what the situation is. And so perhaps in 1960 proper, this would have been fairly enlightening to the people that were watching the film. I will give you that. I just think for me, it it sits as the thing that pulls me out of the film and reminds me how old it is. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's why I'm not... Look, it's, it's a fine scene. It's acted fine. The explanation makes perfect sense. I like the added details of... The fact that uh, Norman was the one that killed his mother and her mother's lover um, back in the day with poison, a weighted coffin. Every might every... have been killing these other two missing. Oh, girls. other two missing women. Yeah. And, um, and so they're the, so like they bring up some the fact that this is not the per- first person Norman has killed. Um, Which anyone who has followed the show Bates Motel will just love all of this. Mm-hmm. Love, love, love. I love, love, love this. And I also love abnormal psychology and the motivations of killers. So I really love this scene. It depends on what it is that you love about Norman Bates other than his charming good looks. <laughs> I will definitely give you that. I don't know. I really like the very, very end though. So you could you could cut some of this out to him sitting in a chair with this psycho look on his face thinking in the terms of the mother's voice that we have to do all we can so that they don't 
believe that I've killed these people mm-hmm. and I'm going to sit here and there's going to be a fly on my hand and I'm not going to kill a fly so that they, when they look at me, they'll say, look at her. She wouldn't even harm a fly. And uh, Anthony Perkins gives this absolutely disturbing look towards the camera. It fades out and there's a little bit of his mother's face. Like as the fade out happens, it mm-hmm. kind of gives him a bit of a scald look around the teeth. And then it cuts to them dragging the swamp and pulling out Marion's car. Or the $40,000 if you're that interested in the money. Exactly. But And that was the big motivation. What about the money? And the psychiatrist flatly says, this was a crime of passion, not about profit. This it's had, in the swamp. It's in the swamp. Yeah. Yeah. And if they'd have only known, not only could Norman Bates or his mother, in his mind, not harm a fly... He didn't give a shit about the money. He didn't even know about the money. This is a poor gentleman who couldn't even say the word bathroom or walk into it in the presence of a woman who has also killed a woman in a shower. That couldn't harm a fly, doesn't care about the money, mm-hmm. isn't looking to move his motel because that was one of the things that people like, well, Norman Bates must have known about the money, stole the money because he's going to move his motel, mm-hmm. which is hilarious because if he knew anything about Norman Bates, like we now do, mm-hmm. he'd have never budged. No, that's his place. That's his home. He'll die there. Or he would have. I I think that the revelations that the characters get are fairly good. And I think the idea that the concept that Norman has gone was perhaps gone for years, but only half there. And now the mother has fully taken over the personality and is now Norman Bates is his mother as far as this film is concerned. Um, I know that the sequels uh, reconcile that a little bit. Mm. Uh, Well, a lot. Which is why I really want to explore Psychosanitarium, which I've been meaning to read for the longest time. I had won it at Dark Carnival, so I've had it in my paws since the summertime. It had been mentioned beforehand when it first came out on Vine Torture Cast. Chris had brought it up, and I was intrigued and very excited to read it then because I was watching Bates Motel and very interested, as ever, in Norman Bates. So I really, really got to read that. Yeah, Absolutely. When looking back on Psycho, I, I could really emphasize to people that it is a it is a film that absolutely has secured its legacy in horror, in film. It deserves the praise that it gets. People that poo-poo it for whatever reason, I feel like they are trying to be shocking. They're trying to be different. And I don't even think that they fucking believe it. The amount of groundwork that this film created... Yeah, we listed all of the tropes earlier, and there's ten times more. Yeah, it's just like shit we're not thinking about, but stuff that is easily... That's just top of mind. We didn't fucking research this. Yeah, watch it for yourself, really. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just pay attention and then listen to other filmmakers talk about the movies, and guaranteed, one of the movies from their list of things that inspired them was Psycho, Mm -hmm. Um, especially of a certain generation, our auteur horror directors, and you know the ones we're talking about, that have all created things and and it has become an undeniable stamp on culture not just pop culture culture yeah to the point that you say horror and people start playing shrieking violin strings absolutely absolutely can't forget block's book um the 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 cases that inspired it and everything that's come after it lovely ed gein that's the one thing about psycho that some people don't quite get you know, more people know that it's based on Ed Gein than they really, like, 
that they're aware of the parallels and the parallels aren't necessarily the things that were found in Gin's house or the murders themselves. Mm -hmm. The murders are very, very different. The households are very, very different. Mm -hmm. It's that relationship with the mother at Gein, we were lucky for a while to have a lot of at Gein time and have him discuss his own psychology because he mm -hmm. was a he read a lot of books he read a lot of books on cannibalism he's really a lot closer to the norm Bates that we mm -hmm. have in the book and as an extra special treat i'm going to read two things today not just a little bit of Locke's book like i did at the beginning of the show oh. but i'm going to read some of the things that they found in ed Gein's house whole human bones and fragments a wastebasket made of human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on his bedposts, female skulls, some with the tops sawn off, bowls made of human skulls, probably the tops of the skulls he sawed off. I'm just guessing. I'm no expert. Mm -hmm. A corset made from a female torso skin from shoulders to waist, leggings made from human leg skin, masks made from the skin of from female heads, Mary Hogan's face mask in a paper bag. Mary Hogan's skull in a box. Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack. Bernice Warden's heart in a plastic bag in front of Gein's pot-bellied stove. Nine vulva in a shoebox. A young girl's dress that had the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old. A belt made from female human nipples. Four noses. A pair of lips on a window shade drawstring, a lampshade made from the skin of a human face, and fingernails from female fingers. I don't care about the fingernails, really. If any hotel room has blood in it, any hotel floor has fingernails, any country home belonging to Ed Gein is going to have some sort of fingernails I'm sure. that's true and also um the the stuff with the like having his mother's body and having the her room sealed off that was very. Norman Bates exactly having exactly. preserved as much as he possibly fucking could mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. having stolen the corpse which is something that sort of overlooked like how he would have ended up with his mother's corpse people might think that it was a random person he murdered but the psychiatrist thanks to his like 20 minute expo dump at the end does say that he had stolen his mother's corpse very much like a Gein. I can see why Robert Block would have sat back and being somewhat aghast that this person he created is so similar to this fucking psycho with a fucking nipple belt. <laughs> I do like the idea of the lampshades, though. It would cast a warm glow. There's that. What do we got next for him? Casting warm glows or icy blue glows, as it were, entity. A little bit of ghost rape. Okay. Yeah, okay, in case okay. you're missing some in your day. I know I am, but uh, another classic film that is under-scrutinized. Um, like I said in the last episode, we talked about it on Kettle Whistle Radio, me and David Fairhead. Go tune into that if you like. There aren't stacks written on Entity that I'm aware of. I would like to read stacks of things written on Entity that are as tall as me, but there just isn't. So I really want to get into that really badly. And then after that, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Eraserhead. Mm -hmm. A little lynch going on. <laughs> Which I had some some Twin Peak moments watching this film uh, when they're talking to the cops, like the sheriff very much. I thought he was going to come up with a wrapped in plastic line or they were going to, you know, decide that they weren't getting any information from him or stop him while he was providing information to them and go and get a cup of coffee and a slice of pie. <laughs> you know, when Ed Gein was arrested, that was one of the first things he asked for was a slice of pie. He wanted... Um, 
a slice of old cheddar cheese, and apple pie. <laughs> what do you think he wanted that for? Comfort food. He was about to spill all and tell about his mom. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.